Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast and as usual I have a guest with me today. His name is Matt. Hi Matt. Hello. So uh, tell our listeners out there in internet land a bit about yourself, Matt. So my name is Matthew Cagle and I am the curator of the Fort Ticonderoga Museum in upstate New York in the United States. Uh, which is perhaps not a museum you would think about when you think about the Great War and Great War history. Uh, but we've actually been doing a little bit of uh, research and exhibition work here to connect our core story of military history in the 18th century with the centennial of the Great War. Can you tell me a bit more about the 18th century part as well? Because I think that sounds very interesting. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Fort Ticonderoga was actually a uh, Built, the construction began in 1755 by the French army, uh, and it was known as Fort Carillon, and it served as a central location during the Seven Years' War in Europe, what we know here in North America as the French and Indian War. Some people call it the First World War, actually. And, and that is very fitting that you say that, because Winston Churchill most famously calls it the First World War uh, in his history of, of uh, the English-speaking peoples. And that was kind of one of our jumping off points is the centennial of the Great War has been going on. How do we connect that with our history, which seems very distant from that? And one way is through that connection with the Seven Years' War, because both the Seven Years' War and the Great War were two conflicts that, that kind of fundamentally reshape the scope and the repercussions of warfare in their respective periods. And we thought that would be an interesting parallel. And we have such a rich collection of 18th century material to draw upon. We thought, well, let's try to explore that somehow. And it just so happens, though, that the museum has an even more vivid World War I connection in the sense that the founder of the museum actually went to France during the Great War. Oh, what are the chances? <laughs> yeah, and what was interesting is is our museum was actually uh, reconstructed from the ruins of this fort that had sat unoccupied for over a hundred years. Uh, and they had been privately purchased by a, a New York merchant in 1820, representing probably the first historic preservation effort of a battlefield in American history. And they reconstructed the fort, and it was open to the public by 1909. So when World War I began, this was already a museum that was welcoming people in to explore the history of this place in the Seven Years' War and the American War of Independence. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so the founder of the museum was already a museum director when he went to war, actually. Yes, was already the founder of a museum. He was a businessman primarily. This was kind of a side project because his family had owned the property here. And and actually the, the war had a, a really powerful impact even before he goes over to France because his business was in cotton trading. And in the summer of 1914, as the First World War began, the cotton markets, as well as a lot of other global markets, just tanked. And he had heavily invested in cotton futures. And when war begins globally, uh, that's that's worthless. And so his company basically was forced into bankruptcy, uh, you know, ruined his business. Uh, he retired somewhat to to focusing on, on family and the project here. But it also meant he didn't have money to continue adding to the museum here, adding to the collections, uh, restoring more of the building. And so they basically sent a telegram overnight when the war began, stop work immediately. We can't afford it. So we actually owe admission prices at the museum to the First World War because they had to charge admission for the first time to cover the expense of the project of building this reconstructed fort and opening the museum. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. I don't think a lot of museums can, uh, can tell that story, I think. 
So let's follow before we go come back to the museum later. Let's follow the the businessman then. What what did he do when you know after his company went bankrupt? You said he he went to war. How did that happen? Well, it, it took some time. Um, ultimately, I think it took American entry. He actually seems to have written a letter to Theodore Roosevelt Jr. offering his services for the American invasion of Mexico, saying that he had some military service, he grew up around horses, and that he would be willing to volunteer for this campaign. Nothing ever seems to have come of that. But he did have prior military experience. He had actually been in the New York Naval Militia and served as a deck gun crew on the USS Yankee during the Spanish-American War. So it was actually part of the taking of Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. So a little bit of military experience, admittedly naval. And ultimately, when the Americans got in the war, he seems to have made up his mind to volunteer with uh, the ambulance service in France. In June of 1917, he gets on board a ship aptly named the Rochambeau uh, in honor of the French general who led an expeditionary force to America during the 18th century, uh, arrives in Bordeaux and goes off to training with the Norton Harges American Volunteer Motor Ambulance Corps, which had been formed very early in the war, uh, 1914, 1915, so the original sections. Uh, and they spent a month training, just kind of getting up to speed. And since he had any prior military experience. He was actually uh, promoted to sergeant kind of right away. And the men began getting into the rhythm of a military life before they would be sent out to the front lines. I mean, that, that speaks volume because that was the time when the U.S. desperately needed any kind of able men and to fill up the ranks with, uh, with officers. Like even in 1918, I think their divisions were twice the size because they didn't have enough uh, officers to, to, to lead the men and everything. So it's, it's interesting that this is also the case with such a volunteer uh, unit, especially since you said they already had been there. Do you know a bit more about the unit by any chance? Well, the, the unit that he joined in the summer of 1917 was, was the amalgamation of a couple of units, one formed by uh, Richard Norton, who was an American uh, in 1914, late 1914, I believe, which was joined with another service that was promoted and funded by a, a banker, uh, Harges, Mr. Harges, and they consolidated together to form one of the two major American volunteer ambulance sections, the other being the American Field Service, which is actually a little better known today, I think partly because they still exist as a, uh, basically as a uh, international uh, education and, and connection group. Um, the Norton Harges volunteers disbanded basically towards the end of the war, but they had been in France for a long time. And Stephen Pell, the museum's founder, initially was attached to Section 59, and they got sent out. They picked up their ambulances and went to a, a quiet section of Lorraine where they you know, would rotate on duty for 24-hour terms going out you know, about a mile behind the front lines waiting to pick up any wounded men who would be pulled back. Eventually, though, what happens to these units is that the American military, once they start getting their uh, base over in France – ultimately decides that they are going to militarize these volunteer sections. So all of these American volunteers are now going to be folded into the U.S. Army Ambulance Service. And for a lot of the members of the units, that means that they transfer out of ambulance work. Uh, some of them wanted to, now that the American Army was there in force and they could serve as combatants, join different branches of service. A lot of them seem to have joined the, the air service. Uh, but some of them go into the artillery, some of them go into other units as well. 
And what that means is that there's all these gaps in these ambulance sections. Stephen happens to be uh, on permission, on leave in Paris, as his unit is, is breaking up, basically. And it looks, you know, within a few months after arriving in France that he's going to be home by Christmas because the section is disbanding and the American army wouldn't allow men over 40 to serve in these frontline roles. Just so happened that Stephen Pell was uh, 43 years old in late 1917. So there's no way he was going to be able to stay in the front lines. So what happens is he actually hears about another section, Section 5, which is one of the, the older sections. Going back to the beginning of the war, they had served at Verdun. They'd been cited in, in French army orders at Verdun for their, for their bravery and their, their duty in action. And they need men because they are gearing up to be sent to the front for the uh, Fort Malmaison attack in late October of 1917. And he goes up to the guy and says, can I join your, your unit? You, you need men, I, I'm happy to join the front lines. And they say, well, yeah, can you get six other guys? Because we need manpower. He's able to find six other men from his old unit who are willing to give up their leave to go directly to the front to join the attack. And they do. They are off to the front lines and they participate in the attack on Fort Malmaison with the 66th French Division of Chasseur Alpin. Oh, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. I read about the, uh, the um, American ambulance volunteers were mentioned in Fleury in Verdun. It's one of the destroyed villages that we visited. And on a, on a, on a memorial plaque there, it actually uh, they, they specifically highlight the uh, chivalry of the... American volunteers that helped there with the ambulances and everything. It's, a, it's an amazing story. And I think it's one of those little historiographical pieces that exists kind of in between different subjects. So, you know, there's a lot written about frontline combat, life in the trenches, tactics, even down to, you know, individual weaponry and uniforms and equipment. And on the other hand, there's a lot of work about strategy and politics and everything that happens behind the lines, the, the changing social norms of, of the home front. And these guys exist in a kind of place in between. You know, they go up to the front lines, but quite often they're, they're waiting for wounded men to come in to bring back the hospitals in the rear areas. So they exist in this both kind of literal and figurative space in between the home front and the battle lines. And it's an interesting place to study it. And letters like drivers like Stephen Pell, our museum founder, I think offer a really vivid sense of, of what this was, where there'd be moments of incredibly intense action under bombardment. There's, there's one point during the Malmaison attack where he describes basically all their driving is done at night without lights on their cars through shell potted roads that are you know, barely passable in daylight. He's actually walking ahead of the car to show the pathway to the guy driving the car behind him. And this incredibly vivid work that, that you wouldn't get a, much of a, a glimpse of without the accounts of these drivers. Well, that sounds fascinating. Does he also speak a bit about how they actually care for the, for the wounded man and everything? I mean, interestingly enough, it gives already you know, some glimpse into the future of you know, medivacs and that kind of thing in, in some way. Yeah. And it's, you know, from my point of view as a primarily an 18th century historian, it's a it's an incredible change in what you have uh, in Fort Ticonderoga during the American War of Independence. There was a battle fought near here in, in Vermont and the wounded lay on the battlefield for, for weeks afterwards, you know, being tended by field surgeons, but not in very good conditions. 
by the First World War, these ambulance sections, uh, even in slow times, would rotate typically on 24 or 48-hour duty right behind the front lines, waiting for a wounded man who was hit on the front lines to be brought off by stretcher bearers. Uh, in this case, they served with the French Army, so to a, a poste de secours, right behind the, the lines, out of the trenches. They would pick these guys up and then drive them back to the the field hospitals, sometimes triage hospitals where they would decide, you know, where these guys were going. Are they going to a, a larger hospital that's in Paris to recuperate or, or somewhere else? And in times of action, like the uh, the attacks, they're, they're working nonstop, you know, hours and hours in a row, basically resting only to fuel up their cars, maybe grab a bite to eat or, or sleep, uh, sometimes sleeping on the stretchers in the back of their ambulances, which of course are, are soaked with blood. You know, he talks about taking gasoline and, and dumping it on the uh, stretcher to just kind of get rid of the smell uh, of these things because they've been in such heavy action. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds grim. But I mean, for the men that got evacuated, it was of course a glimpse of hope because you know, just a war earlier, they wouldn't have made it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you can really see how much things have evolved. And, you know, one of the, the big players in that, I think, is is the automobile, the ability to have this vehicle that can move people off at, at such a speed, you know, despite the conditions they would find, uh, you know, behind the front lines and in areas where there had been shelling, uh, it allowed for rather quick movement. And And that's an interesting thing to think about in the role of the American volunteers who come over is that American volunteers who serve in ambulance sections are often pretty well-to-do. They come from old and established families. And, and one of the things that I've read is that one of the reasons these guys ended up doing the service was not only that volunteer service being a non-combatant role allowed them to go to war, just to experience you know, this cataclysmic event that was occurring in their world, but that wealthier section of American society had more experience with automobiles. Uh, and we know that Stephen Pell had cars uh, before he went to France, so he had some experience with them, although he writes in his letters, he said, I, you know, I wish I had paid more attention to the kind of internal operations, how the engines work and everything else. So there's a, a bit of a learning curve. Uh, but this kind of class of people and, and his family goes back to the 17th century here in America. So they, you know, they had a real reputation and pedigree. Uh, and it was those kind of families that had that experience. That's interesting. It's the second time I hear about the upper class and the connection to mobility. The British in 1914, um, when, you know, when the war was still mobile until the race to the sea, until the establishment of the trenches, they needed cars for scouting operations and everything. So some of the higher uh, class officers and everything, they brought their Rolls Royce cars over and then, uh, you know, basically put on the, the gloves and said, yeah, let's give the, the Hun a scare. And then they started driving off and then slowly put some armor platings on these and like shipyards and everything. And voila, you had armored cars. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, a lot of these ambulance sections too appear to have started with, you know, wealthy Americans often who had been living in Paris before who basically used their automobiles oh. and then purchased new ones. And then you see drives to uh, equip American sections of volunteers with Uh, ambulances, Ford ambulances that were purchased through subscriptions and drives back in the United States well before the U.S. became involved. And it's a little different for the section that uh, Stephen Pell was in because they were actually directly attached to the French army. So they drew their automobiles from the, the French motor park 
And he describes going to Nancy where there were just seas of vehicles and they drew their ambulances and, and they drew a section of 20, originally 20 Fiat ambulances uh, that had been used by a, a French section prior. But just before they go into action at, at Fort Malmaison in October of 1917, the whole section gets re-equipped uh, because they've now gone into American service, they get re-equipped with the Ford Model T ambulances, which have this, you know, reputation as this kind of indestructible, lightweight, you know, four guys can lift it up and put it back on the road. And a lot of the letters from the men of this section actually describe how unconvinced they were that the Ford Model T was going to be a successful vehicle. They're used to these big, you know, Fiat or Packard ambulances. And they say, you know, these little Fords, are, they're not going to do the job. In fact, one of the guys in Stephen's section calls them pasteboard Fords repeatedly uh, right after they're issued. They don't seem to comment a lot after that uh, attack. So maybe they got came to terms with their uh, with their Fords. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the thing is that, you know, what also tank developers learned is that if a car, if a vehicle is very heavy, it also gets stuck in the mud. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and Stephen stays at this uh, unit till the end of the war, basically, then. Yeah, they, uh, they get pulled out of the line after the, the attack on Malmaison is successful, uh, and they basically get sent en rapport so, you know, to recuperate because their division was, was right in the thick of it. Uh, they end up in a series of small little towns, uh, some of which I had the chance to visit last fall as I was doing some research in France after a conference. Nice. And they're very small. Uh, <laughs> he describes one Saint-Rémy-Blanzy as the smallest village in France, um, and they have to basically spend the winter fighting boredom as much as the Germans. You know, the Allies aren't making offensives, uh, and they're in these little towns. There's very little to do. Uh, he actually, with the other men of his section, they decide to create what they call the Saint-Rémy Country Club uh, to amuse themselves because they said in any of their little billets, they're usually able to scrounge up a table and chairs, uh, and they'll just sit around and they'll share drinks and they'll share each other's company and writing letters to home. And, and actually in the spring of 1918, he even makes letterhead for the Saint-Rémy Country Club. Uh, and so a lot of his letters are on this letterhead for this fictitious club these guys set up, which lists the location of their clubhouse as the nearest cafe. So trying to make the best of uh, the situation of, of the war. And they get passed around in a, in a variety of, of billets, mostly in the Enne River Valley region of France. So by the end of May of 1918, they're right in the way of one of the German offensives. And Within a few weeks' time, they end up getting pushed back pretty dramatically, and they see the, the Allied armies recoiling backwards. They see all these little billets that they had spent the winter over and met the French inhabitants now being occupied by the Germans and, and refugees fleeing out. And, and it's those moments that he says are, are really the most vivid in his mind, even having been in some of the attacks of, of Malmaison, the, the movement of the population in addition to the soldiers uh, in that spring and early summer of 1918 really have a, a, a vivid role in his memory. Did he also talk about the fact, uh, or not the fact, the change of the, of the way the war was fought then? I mean, when the front line was static, you could probably envision a pretty regular ambulance system, set up field hospitals and everything. But what about what when the when the front shifts very fast, um, how do you do your kind of job when that happens? Yeah, he, he does reference some of that change. And, and some of the change is also, a, we can tell based on the tone and the pace of his letters. You know, his letter writing decreases pretty dramatically uh, over that time period. And there'll be little quick notes to his family back home or to friends, not the lengthy letters 
from the fall of 1917 when they're out in Lorraine. And he even comments, you know, he's, he says, I, I realized what a quiet section we were in where we'd still have to pull people off. But this is totally different because that whole nature of their their posts, the, the, the post behind the lines for the wounded men, the field hospitals and triage hospitals is totally disrupted. And they kind of have to catch as catch can as they're retiring. So they usually after they get pushed back a fair amount and that that offensive slows a bit, set up new hospitals uh, behind the lines in chateaus or something. In fact, there's one uh, in Bourson that they see this just whole mix of French soldiers, French colonial troops from North Africa, Americans and others lying out at this chateau, which is basically you know, almost overnight been turned into a field hospital. And despite being marked, uh, gets strafed by German planes, actually, uh, which is really you know, shocking to these men. And so they're also having to disrupt their normal pattern where usually this section of 20 cars or so would send off, you know, one or two vehicles to the shift towards the front. Now they're working kind of nonstop. And in fact, uh, his section, section five, they, in the American service, they become section six, four, six ends up working with other sections, no matter what division they're attached to, they're pulling off anyone they can just because the need is so great. And they would have these rendezvous points uh, and typical bases. But once the Germans push through, they have to go to their contingency plans and just say, set up a rendezvous point well behind the lines as our kind of second second line. And they find themselves having to use that. But then again, by the time you get into July, the allies are counterattacking. They're now driving back through the areas that they had been in over the winter that they're now liberating basically from the German army. And so on July 31st, they re-enter the town that they had spent Christmas in um, and say, you know, it's amazing to think that months ago we were here celebrating Christmas. Now it's the scene of, of literally the front line of the war. And it's the day after that on August 1st that he's actually wounded. Uh, you know, ambulance men were, were not immune to this, although they're non-combatants, although they have the Red Cross on their cars, you know, shell fire doesn't distinguish between combatant and non-combatant. Yeah, shrapnel doesn't care. <laughs> Not at all. And uh, and he gets hit by a piece of a piece of shrapnel that basically travels up the length of his lower leg, um, from his ankle up to his knee, uh, you know, splitting it open. By his account, he laid out for 20 hours on a stretcher, uh, waiting for medical attention before being brought back behind the lines. And he's fortunate enough to go to a, a hospital at Angicourt, uh, which had been set up in an old sanatorium. And there was a mobile surgical unit there that actually happened to be run by a cousin of his. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was actually treating, particularly because they had a, a lot of English and American nurses and staff, they ended up treating a lot of American and British casualties uh, by that point in the war. And so he happens to get really good service there uh, as he's recuperating from this wound that, you know, basically requires the draining of his of his leg and, and putting it back into shape. He talks about having a crooked leg I and mean, it's a pretty serious injury. And it's one that keeps him out of the front line for the rest of the war. Basically. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's incredible that you meet your cousin there. Uh, I recently uh, read that uh, Ernst Jünger, you know, the, he's a German officer for the stormtroopers in the spring offensive. He walks through the battlefield and finds his brother in a shell hole, even though the brother is in a completely different unit and everything. Well, I think in this case too, you, you get that situation that Because so many of those American volunteers had come over from a certain social class and social circle, the kind of set of New York and Boston and Newport, a lot of them knew each other prior to the war to begin with and were of this class that wanted to contribute. And so, you know, they connect with each other when they're over there. They pass letters between each other. And 
he ends up, you know, finding a lot of these people that he had met before the war. And, and in fact, we have in the collection the piece of shrapnel that was taken out of his leg. What a souvenir from France. Yeah, you know, about a one-inch kind of square chunk of steel that he actually had a special little case made for, which I think fits his, his historical interest even prior to this with that connection with France and its history in North America and now going back over to France. So the, the case is actually mounted inside a Louis Fourteenth silver coin uh, and inside of it is engraved with his initials and the initials of all of these nurses that he had known uh, that helped him out when he was in France. Oh, that's really cool. Um, so, uh, speaking of the collection, what, what did he bring anything else over from France? Or, uh, I mean, I know that already by 1919 in France you had things like battlefield tourism, even though not all the dead were buried, and certainly you had an interest in um, basically, yeah, souvenirs, as I called it, from from the Great War. I mean, like shell shell casing art and everything was super big in 1919 already. So, what what uh, did he get uh, for himself or for the museum? Well, it's interesting because he, he goes over, I think, with the sense that he's going to find maybe some 18th century material that he can bring back for the museum. And when he's in Lorraine, he talks about that and he writes, you know, I'm not really finding anything that I want. I did find these poilus who were using a 16th century poleaxe head to hang their camp kettle on, making making supper. Uh, and he bought it off them for a pack of cigarettes. Um, but he doesn't appear to have gotten much of the old stuff he wanted. He does, you know, like a lot of these guys, bring stuff back. And we've been doing a major cataloging project that's been funded by the Institute for Museum and Library Services, a big federal agency here in the United States, where we've uncovered a lot of this World War I material that the museum had, but, you know, we never paid attention to because it wasn't part of our core story. And one of my colleagues, Margaret Stouter, our registrar, was going through this thing and said, oh, are you interested in this, in this bowl? And I said, Well, turn it over. That's actually a, a German Stahlhelm. It's not a bowl at all, but it's just been sitting on a, on a shelf. Um, and so we're able to put that on display. Uh, they, he seems to have brought back some German shell fuses, which I understand were, were a kind of interesting little pickup by a lot of guys because they're fairly small, but intricate and you know made of brass. Uh, some weaponry made its way back into our collection somehow. Uh, and because these Ambulance drivers were non-combatants, of course, they were unarmed, so these wouldn't have been service weapons, some French rifles, a German carbine. Uh, and so what we're doing in our exhibit this year, uh, which is entitled Great Wars, to reference that connection between the Seven Years' War and World War One, is juxtaposing some of this World War One weaponry and technology with that of the Seven Years' War to show in some ways how the, the tactics or even the types of weapons see a rebirth in the early 20th century. So we have on display some French and German carbines, which had been developed initially for, for cavalry use, typically, which is a type of weaponry that dates back to the early modern period. You know, once you get a reliable flintlock ignition, you see shorter barreled, smaller caliber weapons for mounted troops to be able to use. Although mounted troops are, are on the decline, although that is an interesting subject, looking at mounted troops in the Great War. Uh, yeah, of course. Their weaponry, that those small, you know, short-barreled, sometimes smaller caliber weapons, take on a new life in the trenches of the Western Front and elsewhere, and that is in some ways a kind of echo of, of this earlier period. Or even things like grenades. You know, grenades are heavily used in siege warfare in the late 17th and early 18th century. We have a lot of them that are found archaeologically here at Fort Ticonderoga. And, of course, they see this complete rebirth in the early 20th century as a weapon, uh, both offensive and defensive, that can be used uh, in the trenches. 
Well, that's a, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, if World War One is one thing, then it is also this kind of clash of the old and the new kind of thing. For example, the helmet in itself is also something that comes back, which is something that was used, you know, hundreds of years before as a you know reliable source of protection, and somehow they got rid of it, but now it comes back. Exactly. And that's one of the interesting things to think about from our point of view. When we talk with our visitors about understanding warfare in the 18th century, when you think about it from that perspective, the fact that in the 18th century, soldiers typically, with some exceptions, don't wear helmets, makes that early modern period the kind of aberration in the long scope of the history of warfare. You know, we're almost getting back to normalcy in the First World War with the introduction of helmets, although for a different reason, you know, protected against different types of weapons. But that idea that armor is part of what a soldier wears. So we will actually be juxtaposing uh, World War I helmets in our collection uh, with some of the headgear of the 18th century and even the late 19th century to, to kind of show that difference. And it's interesting to, to, to note also that that historical reference is being explicitly looked at. So in America, at least, uh, Bashford Dean, who is the, the, really the, the guy who created the arms and armor department at the Metropolitan Museum in the United States, is tasked by the government with designing helmets, using his historical knowledge uh, and collection to base these examples off of. Ultimately, they're not accepted for use because I think they look too much like the German ones, according to some sources. Um, I've, I've seen the book. Uh, I will put a link to that. There is a publication where his designs are shown and everything. It's uh, it's on the in the Internet Archive. I will put a link in the podcast description if our listeners are curious to see those. Yeah, that'd be and Bashford Dean, that that curator had a relationship with Stephen Pell and, and ultimately he donates material from the 18th century to our museum. So there was a kind of communication there. And in fact, The, one of the, the key objects that's going to be in this exhibition this year is uh, the fanion, the section flag of uh, Ambulance Section 5-646, which, according to the veterans of the unit in 1919, was the most highly decorated American emblem of the First World War. Because these guys had been volunteers serving since almost the beginning of the war, they had all these chances to uh, acquit themselves with valor. And... They received uh, citations and army orders at Verdun in 1916 and then uh, on the Chemin des Dames at Fort Malmaison in October of 1917 and two citations in French army orders entitled you to wear the fourragère in the color of the Croix de Guerre, the red and um, green silk cord uh, over the shoulder, which was a, a major honor. And I believe they were the first American unit to be awarded that, even though they were not actually a combat unit. Uh, because of their gallantry and pulling wounded men out of the lines. And it was a great honor to have worn this. And then during 1918, they actually received two further citations in army orders that got them a second fourragère in the color of the Médaille Militaire, which was presented to them at the Metropolitan Museum of Art as the veterans organization uh, in the fall of 1919. Apparently the only such decoration to be given to a unit outside of French territory. And the flag was actually on display in 1919 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, before it ultimately came up to Fort Ticonderoga. And we recently got it conserved. It was beautiful silk, rather small, but silk flag embroidered in gold with battle honors from Verdun to Champagne uh, in 1918. And the weight of the gold had actually damaged the silk. So we just uh, received a, a grant here in the United States to conserve that and it'll be on display for the first time in decades. That's really awesome. So two things, Matt, now. 
So one thing is actually, I think we should do an episode about the U.S. volunteers uh, in the in the ambulance drivers and everything. That's a great idea. So do you do you know any good uh, books on the subject that you can recommend by any chance? I do. There's a. Uh... There's not a lot from what I found. This has been a challenge of research. We've been looking mostly at primary accounts, uh, and there's some good published ones that I can I can send you to. There's a book that's it's fairly old now, I think called Gentlemen Volunteers by Arlen Hansen, which has been a, a, an invaluable resource um, and really one of the only book-length subjects of American volunteer ambulance drivers that I've seen. That sounds great. I will also put, if I find a link to that, I will also put it in the podcast description. And secondly, even though I'm in Berlin, all the time. I also really want to visit the museum now. How can I do that? Or how can the, how can the listeners do that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we want them all to come. And, and what, what I'll say is, you know, come for the 20th century, stay for the 18th century and explore our, our long story here at Ticonderoga. So we open for what we call our campaign season. That is our daily visitation season on May 5th of this year. And we'll be open every day through the end of November. Uh, we're right on the, the corridor between New York City and Montreal. Uh, so our Canadian listeners can come down and see us. Our Americans can come up and see us. Uh, this exhibit, Great Wars, Ticonderoga and World War One, will be open the day we open to the public on May 5th. And it'll be open through this year and next year as well. So there's a lot of chances to uh, come in and see this. Uh, I'll be doing some curator talks throughout the season uh, as I come down and talk about particular objects and stories uh, that we have on display. Play. Um, and, you know, we look forward to people coming and, and checking out a different side of our Ticonderoga story, uh, but one that left a, an indelible mark uh, on this place. So even if you are a local and have been to that museum as a kid, go again. Now is the time to revisit. Um, and of course, you know, the, you have a website and I will put a link to that in the, in the podcast description as well that you can click on. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Matt. That was super interesting. I certainly learned a lot. And as I said, I'm very um, eager to do an episode about the, these guys. Now. I think it'd be a great idea. It's a really fascinating story. And it was great to talk to you about our little part of it here. Awesome. Then uh, have a nice weekend and uh, talk, to, talk to you soon. Yes, you as well. Thank you very much.